Well, good morning and greetings in Jesus' name. It's a blessing again to be here this morning. And uh, I had a couple of questions today. I was asked if I'm going to be preaching on the fourth message on faith, and I'm still planning to do that. I'm looking for a few more stories. Um, so I'm going to put a plug out there again for that. I, people from time to time say they have a story for me, but I want to see it. I want to see it in writing. Um, I'd like to compile stories of faith from our church here, and I think that that could be meaningful and powerful for all of us. So that's coming, whether it'll be the next time or the time after, we'll see. Um, but I'm still looking for some additional stories there. I got, I got some really good ones. Looking forward to looking over that and putting that together. So that's something that I'm still working on. The title of today's message is Remember Lot's Wife. And that is in the passage there that Jason read. And as I prepared for the message today, I realized how closely today's message is to uh, is related to Jason's message last Sunday on, well, you tell me, what was Jason's message last Sunday about? Can anyone tell me? Put you on the spot. Eternal destinies. Yep. Somebody else is going to say something. Yep. Choice, choices and destinies. Yep, right on. Very good. And as I thought about the message today, I realized that it has a lot to do with Jason's message on choices and destinies. And yet I felt compelled that this was the right message for today. And so I suppose you could, in a sense, view, view this as a sequel to Jason's message last Sunday, coming at it from a little bit different angle. And I'd like to look today some at how our choices not only affect us, but also affect others as well. And so I'd like to break out this message into a couple of sections. First of all, we'll look at who was Lot. We'll look at an overview of Lot's life story. We'll review some of Lot's key choices, and we'll analyze Lot's legacy. And then we'll come back to Luke 17 and consider Jesus' warning there for us, and then hopefully develop some applications at the end. So first of all, who was Lot? I think we would have some answers for that right off the top of our head. Lot was Abraham's nephew, or I should say Abram's nephew. And in the passage we're reading today, it'll it'll call him Abram. Um, He was the ancestor of the Moabites and the Ammonites. Um, The Bible talks some about Lot's character. If we read just the story of Lot, we would probably have a question or two about his character and some of the choices that he made. But 2 Peter 2, verses 6 through 9, makes it very clear to us that Lot was a righteous man. The verse there says that Lot was just, the same idea as righteous, and that he was vexed or tormented by what he he saw around him in the people day by day by day, particularly the reckless sexual perversion that he witnessed around him. So that's just a little glimpse who Lot was and what he was like. But I want to look at an overview of Lot's life story. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 13. And we're going to sit there throughout most of the service today here in the early part of Genesis. Uh, We'll be looking at chapters 13 through 19. And as we go through the story, you can kind of leaf through uh, these sections of Genesis and follow along. So you'll notice if you go back a little bit into chapter 12, um, that Lot or that Terah was the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So Terah, the Bible gives us, has three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. 
Haran was the father of Lot, and Haran died in the land of Ur, which is where this family came from. I don't know that we know exactly why, but for some reason, Terah took Abram and Sarai and Lot and left Ur the Chaldees to go to Haran, which was north of Canaan. And I would have always thought that Abram left Ur because God called him to leave his people and his nation and to go to a place that God had called him to. But a simple reading of scripture would indicate that God actually called Abram out of the land of Haran in Genesis chapter 12. So we'll go with that. I I would imagine there's probably some differing opinions there. Either way, Lot went with grandpa, uncle, and aunt from Ur to the land of Haran. Now, as I would understand it, uh, Terah was about 70 when Abram was born, and it seems that Lot would have been maybe 20 or 30 years younger than Abram. And I'm I'm guessing, again, there's probably differing perspectives and and views on that. That's not critically important, but that's what I'm going to go with as we look at Lot's life today. So I would venture to guess that Terah was a bit over 110, Abram was around 40, and Lot was somewhere between 10 and 20 years old when they moved from Ur to Haran, which again, Haran was north of the land of Canaan. From Haran, God called Abram to Canaan, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, along with him. And at this time, I would guess that Abram was probably 75, and Lot was perhaps in the 35 to 45 age range at that time. From there, uh, as we follow the scriptures, Abram and Sarai went down to Egypt over a period of famine, and Lot went along with them as well. And then in Genesis chapter 13, we have the official separation of Abram and Lot. And my guess is that perhaps it was over this time that Lot found a wife. Scripture doesn't tell us that. The first indication that we have of Lot's wife is found in Genesis chapter 19, verse 15, when the angels tell Lot and his wife and daughters to flee Sodom. Now, the destruction of Sodom, again, if we follow the timeline, I would guess would have been around 24 years after they moved from Haran to Canaan. Um, And by this time, from what I can tell, Lot, and there's, again, there's some discrepancy here. These details aren't critical, but Lot, I believe, would have had four daughters, two of which were married, two unmarried. And so it seems possible, if not likely, that Lot married in Haran, or at least in the early days of living in Canaan, even though... His wife is not mentioned until later. Now, I would think when Jesus says, remember Lot's wife, I would think if it would have been important for us to know where she came from or a little bit more of her background, that scripture would give us more of that. But I think there's a reason why we don't know more about her background. And I believe it's because, or partially because, Jesus' warning is for all people. Certainly for all believers. And we'll dig into that a little bit more later on. So if I was to summarize Lot's life, it would go something like this. And note again that ages are estimated. Born in Ur of the Chaldees, his father died likely when Lot was quite young. And I'm I'm imagining that that was a very traumatic experience for Lot. But his grandfather Terah and his uncle Abram took him under their wing. Particularly, it appears that Abram became somewhat of a father figure to Lot. And this seems clear since he went with Abram out of Haran, where he had grown up, even though his grandfather and his uncle stayed in Haran at the time. He likely moved to Haran, again, I mentioned this, around the age of 15, and then on to Canaan with Abram 
and Sarai around the age of 40. And my assumption is, and I think it's a safe one, that Lot received much of his understanding of who God is and who God was and what the relationship with God looked like from his uncle Abram. And we see kind of an interesting relationship there. And I think for the most part, a good relationship. Um, You know, we focus a lot on the story of their separation, and, and I think that's okay. But I think Lot and Abram over the years had a really positive relationship. Somewhere around the time of the move to Canaan, Lot would have been married. We don't know much about his wife. Likely she was from Haran or Canaan. In Haran, Lot started to become very successful in business. He acquired possessions, animals, and servants in Haran. So much so that Lot and Abram were forced to separate from each other. Lot, as we know, chose to move closer to Sodom and eventually ended up living in the city of Sodom. After that, he was taken as a captive of war, but he was, he was restored when Abram rescued Lot and the others from Sodom. Lot then lived again in Sodom and continued his success in business and, from what we can tell, became a leader in his community there in the city of Sodom. And I'm guessing that Lot was likely in his mid-60s when the town of Sodom was destroyed and then he fathered two sons with his two daughters. And that's it. That's the end of the story of Lot as we know it. Much, much more could be said about the relationship of Lot's descendants and Abram's descendants, but that's where we'll stop with the story for now. But I want to spend some time reviewing Lot's key choices because I think it's here that we can find lessons for today. We have an overview of his life. Uh, we maybe understand a little bit more of who he was father dying at a young age and taken in, it appears like, uh, from his uncle, Abram. And now I want to look a little bit more at the, at the key choices of his life. The first choice would have been the move from Ur to Haran. And I, I don't know that Lot, as a young man, really had an option here. His whole family was moving. Um, I don't think he had much choice in this matter. But the move from Haran to Canaan, I think, is an important one. And I want to think about that and spend a little bit of time on that this morning because it appears that Lot had processed pretty well the death of his own father. It does not appear, from what we can tell, that Lot was bitter towards God because of it, because of that or anything else that had happened in his life. Rather, it appears that Lot had accepted Abram as the father figure of his life. And I find it remarkable, and I give Lot a lot of room here this morning. I find it remarkable that Lot chose to go with Abram to the land of Canaan. I'm guessing it would have been fairly easy to stay at Haran. That's where he grew up. That's what he knew. That's where Grandpa and his other uncle were staying. But even though God specifically called Abram to move, not not Lot necessarily that we know of, I see this as a step of faith for Lot, making that move from Haran to the land of Canaan, and an attempt by Lot to draw closer to God through following Abram closely. I believe that Lot wanted the things of God. I believe he cared about the things of God, and I believe that he desired the things of God. The next one that we're going to look at, the next choice that we're going to look at, and the one that gets highlighted quite a bit, is parting ways with Abram, and that's in Genesis chapter 13. If you go ahead and turn there, you're probably there already. Genesis chapter 13 We'll look at verses 8 
through 11. And this is one choice in particular, probably the first one that comes to mind when we think about Lot. And in this passage, Abram gives Lot the first choice. So Genesis chapter 13, I'll start reading in verse 8. Uh, We could look, just kind of browse the verses before that, and you'll notice that Abram and Lot just simply couldn't be in the same area. They had too many animals, too many people, not enough space. And so then in verse 8, Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves, the one from the other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. So Abraham takes the lead here as the uncle and says, you know, it's, it's time for us to separate. We've been together all these years. We've had, we've been, I, I'm assuming they enjoyed the relationship together. Lot learned a lot about God when he was with Abram, I believe. But it's time to separate. We just have too many animals, too many people, not, a, not enough space. There's infighting. It's time for us to separate. And so Abram took responsibility to have that conversation. I'm sure it was a difficult conversation. And then he gave Lot the choice, which is impressive. Now, Lot looks both ways, of course. And I think you and I would have as well. Lot saw the well-watered plain. He saw that it was like the garden of the Lord. He saw that it was like the land of Egypt. And he chose the best for himself. Now, I don't think that this was a fatal mistake for Lot per se. We could, we could look at Lot's life and we could say this was the start of the downward spiral toward Sodom. And it was. But I don't think that this was a fatal mistake. Surely he could have come back to Abram and apologized. Or surely he could have asked for Abram's advice on how to deal with a city like like Sodom. The next choice that we see from Lot is living close to Sodom, and this is found in verse 12. So if you look in verse 12, Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom, or we could say pitched his tent close to the city of Sodom. So perhaps parting with Abram or choosing the best land wasn't the fatal mistake. Rather, I think the bigger and more important choice comes here in verse 12. And we can contrast that with Abram's response in verse 18, where it says, And Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. So we see Abram's response. I don't know what Abram thought. Lot picked the best. I'm guessing Abram kind of expected that. But Abram also knew that he had the promise of God on his life, and he was going to worship God regardless of the choices that Lot made here. 
So Lot had just chosen the best land, and he made a great financial choice, I believe. Financially, I think it worked out very well for him. But he pitched his tent towards Sodom, and again, we could say near Sodom. And in verse 13, it tells us what the men of Sodom were like and why that was a problem. Verse 13, the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Versus Abram's choice to move the other direction and built an altar to the Lord. And my guess is that Sodom was also a financially wealthy city and a great place to do, to do business. And I'm guessing that's why Lot continued his move towards Sodom. The financial benefits of living close to Sodom were great, but ultimately, probably even better to live within the city of Sodom itself. So the next choice that Lot makes is living in Sodom, and we don't know exactly when that happened, but we do know, if we turn to chapter 14 and look at verse 12, by the time that there was war, by the time of this war, Lot had moved into the city of Sodom. It says here, they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and departed. And I want to contrast here again briefly the response of Lot and the response of Abram to Sodom's wealth. Because Lot's response, I believe, was to move closer and then move in to the city. Whereas we see Abram's response to Sodom's wealth in verse 23 of chapter 14. So the story goes something like this. A lot of kings got together on one side, fought a bunch of kings on the other side. They won. They took all their stuff, including Sodom, including Lot, and all of Lot's stuff. Abram found out about it, went, took his men, and restored uh, the kings that were taken back to their cities and took, took all the stuff back, and Lot included. And then the king of Sodom responds, as you would expect him to respond, and says, you know, Abram, I'll take the people, but you've come and done all this work, and you've rescued us. You take all the stuff. And let's look at Abram's response there in, in, verse four, in chapter 14 and verse 23. This is Abram's response to the wealth of Sodom. And we'll back up to verse 22. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. Response number one was, I'm focusing on God. Response number two in verse 23, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich. Now take a moment and ponder that. Abram would have had every right to say, yes, you're right. I can take all this stuff. Here's my opportunity to take all of Sodom's wealth, very wealthy city. I can take all this stuff. This, this is rightfully mine. And I believe it would have been legitimate, but he refused. Abram could have legitimately taken these possessions, but refused to do so. It seems to me that though Abram and Lot were both very wealthy, they seemed to have differing perspectives on that wealth. I want us to take a moment and just ponder that briefly. They seemed to have differing perspectives on that wealth. And then finally, the next choice of Lot was becoming part of Sodom. And we don't know exactly a lot of details about this, but Lot was sitting in the city gate when the angels came uh, to, to bring him out before Sodom was destroyed. 
and that signifies that he had some type of leadership within the city, some type of leadership position. So we don't know what that looks like exactly, but not only did he live there, he also became part of the leadership system in Sodom itself. Then there's two more choices or responses that I want to look at here. One is his response when the angels came to Sodom, and then his response to the angels' command to leave the city. Abram had had a remarkable conversation with the Lord, in which the Lord agreed that if there's ten righteous found in Sodom, he would spare the city for the sake of those ten righteous. Now, why ten? I don't know exactly. I'm guessing that was Abram's aim the whole time when he began talking to the Lord. I'm guessing Abram probably figured that Lot and his wife and his four daughters and perhaps four sons-in-law would be ten, or maybe some grandchildren. Surely, with Lot in the city of Sodom, there would be at least ten righteous, including Lot's family. But as we know, clearly, there wasn't. So Lot's response to the angels when they came to Sodom, he invited them to stay in his house. No, actually, he insisted that they stay in his house overnight because he knew the people around him. He knew the intent of the men of the city. And sure enough, they came and insisted on practicing depraved homosexual relations with these new men that came to town. Now, I find it interesting in verse 7 of, I believe it is chapter 19. So turn back to chapter 19, a few pages. In verse 7, Lot calls these men brethren. And I think that indicates a little bit of the relationship that Lot found himself in with these men. He was righteous. They were wicked. He had one goal in mind. They had another goal in mind. Completely opposite perspectives on life. Completely opposite perspectives on reality and truth and what is right and wrong. And yet here Lot calls these men brethren, or we we might say today, friends. What was his interaction with and his relationship like with these men? Perhaps they were business partners involved together in business. Perhaps they did fun things together. Perhaps they did activities together. Maybe their families did stuff together. I don't know. But, but regardless, it, it uh, is intriguing to me here that Lot calls them brethren or friends. Now, Lot does rebuke the men's requests, calling it wicked. So Lot had a very clear conscience, I believe, and a very clear understanding of, of right and wrong for the most part. Because then in verse 8, we see Lot's response to these men, and this is just unbelievable, especially for a righteous man. But I believe that Lot understood that these men acting in this way, that is against nature, the vileness and the wickedness of their request, I think he understood that acting out in that would bring about destruction on this city. I think he had perhaps an inkling that that was coming. And so Lot, I believe, was trying to protect his city more than he was trying to protect his daughters. And I'm not sure what to do with that. That is mind-blowing for us here as we think about it, for Lot, a righteous man, to respond in that way. 
Now, his response to the angel's command to leave the city, he warned his sons-in-law. Unfortunately, as we read, they were not on the same page with Lot. They did not have the same understanding as Lot did. Now, Lot lingered. He waited till morning. Even then, he hesitated, so much so that the angels had to pull him out by the hand to get him out of the city. But I want us to ponder that for a moment. What would it be like to leave everything you've ever done? Everything. What would it be like all the years that you've spent building a financial empire, investing in a specific community, talking to people, interacting with people, and now just to leave it? To just walk away from everything? We also see Lot's response, his request to go to the next city rather than fleeing to the mountains, and ultimately his family, himself, his wife, and his two unmarried daughters got out of the city, but his wife looked back and lost her life, becoming a pillar of salt. Remember Lot's wife. So what was Lot's legacy? Now, we might not know any more about Lot, unless we knew his legacy. After all, the verse in Second Peter that I mentioned before mentions that Lot was a righteous man and that he was distressed with the lawless acts of the men around him. But let's take a moment and look at Lot's legacy and ponder this. You see, Lot lost all the wealth that he had when the city he lived in was destroyed. He lost every possession. It doesn't indicate that Lot took any possessions that he had out of the city. Lot lost his wife. She became a pillar of salt because she looked back. Lot lost his married daughters, his sons-in-law, and grandchildren, if he had any, due to their unbelief. Lot offered his two unmarried daughters to the perverted men of the town to appease them in a desire, I believe, to save the city from destruction. Lot committed incest with his two unmarried daughters, and his children became the Moabites and the Ammonites. So what happened? What was the ultimate end of Lot? It appears that Lot saved his soul, but lost all of his family, including his wife. It appears that Lot escaped with his righteousness intact, that his decisions were not fatal to his spiritual well-being. But had he known the ultimate end of his family and how they would be affected, I'm guessing he probably would have made different choices. So I want to turn back to Luke 17. And I want to read a few verses there again as we think about the admonition to remember Lot's wife. Why would we remember Lot's wife. Luke 17, and I'm going to start reading in verse 26, and I'm going to read to verse 33, just a shorter portion, a shorter part of what Jason read. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, also it was in the days of Lot. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out 
of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. That's why it matters to us. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down and take it away. And he, and he that is in the field, let him not likewise return back. Remember Lot's wife. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. And I believe that this prophecy uh, has two fulfillments. If I understand correctly, I think the one fulfillment happened already when Jerusalem was destroyed. I didn't do research into that, but I believe that's the case. But I believe that there's major, major implications here for us today to remember Lot's wife. In Noah's day, it says they were eating and drinking, getting married right up until the day the flood started. A lot of people continued to do the exact same thing that they did day after day after day, almost as if they had no idea it was coming. And I believe it's because they had no idea that it was coming. Even though Noah was preaching, they were not believing that the day was coming. In Lot's day, they were eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, and building right up until the time that Sodom was destroyed. It was almost as if they had no idea that the day was coming. And I believe it's because they had no idea that the day was coming. Those that are under judgment live normal lives right up until the day that the judgment comes. And both of these times were also places in history that were characterized by overindulgence in fleshly desires, sexual perversion, and extreme evil. And now I wonder what you're thinking. Is there a theme? The days of Noah, the days of Lot, what about today? And, let's, and so let's pull together some loose ends here and make some conclusions and applications to our lives today. Lot was a righteous man. The Bible makes that clear. There's no question. But he ended up with a sorry legacy, completely losing his wife, his children, all of his possessions. Literally everything he worked for in life, he lost except his own soul. He was not able to bring one converted soul with him out of the city of Sodom. But I want to consider for a moment what Sodom was really like. We read Genesis 13, verse 13, where it indicates that the people of Sodom were extremely wicked and sinful. Genesis 18, 20, the Lord says that their sin is grievous or weighty or heavy. I'm going to go there, the Lord said, and see what it's like And then I'll really know if the cry that I hear is actually how it is. And we just reviewed the story in Genesis 19, where the men of the city came desiring to defile those two new men who had arrived with homosexual relations. Ezekiel 16 gives gives us another window into what Sodom was like. Now that chapter, go ahead and turn there. Ezekiel chapter 16, uh, very interesting chapter. It's an allegory of Jerusalem as an unfaithful wife. But in verses 49 and 50, uh, we read a little bit more 
about what Sodom was like. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom, pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. So it's an allegory here of Jerusalem as an unfaithful wife, but it gives us a very real picture or window into what Sodom was like and what Sodom's sin was. And what I find interesting here is I don't see anything about sexual perversion. That's what I would have imagined would definitely be listed here. But what I see is pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness or unconcerned, unconcerned mentality, and ignoring the poor and the needy. That is not what I would have expected to find here in Ezekiel. And we can talk all day about the progression of Lot. He started by choosing the area that was in the direction of Sodom, then choosing to live close to Sodom, then choosing to live in Sodom, then becoming a leader in Sodom, and finally getting to the point where he had to be physically pulled out of Sodom by the hand to leave. And that even though he knew that Sodom was going to be destroyed, and I don't think he questioned God's decision on that for a minute. I think he completely understood why. And that discussion, talking about that progression, would be a very worthwhile discussion to have. I think that's critical for us to think about where our our, uh, responses, where our choices lead, and what path we're heading down, and to consider the dangers of giving ourselves over to the agenda of the world and the devil bit by bit, sometimes hardly even without knowing it. And we can sit here this morning and say, look at us, a group of holy Christ-like people. And we can be puffed up this morning and say we would never take a step towards Sodom, or surely we would never live in Sodom. We would have more sense than that. And we could sit here this morning and say, look at Lot making those bad decisions one by one over a period of years. And look at where it took him. Isn't that sad. But this morning, I'm not talking to a group of people who are at the decision point of, well, do I take a step towards Sodom or not? Rather, my guess, and and the way I want to think about this this morning, is that I'm talking to and part of a group of people, you, who for all intents and purposes are already living in Sodom. That's how I want to frame and think about this story this morning. Because as you well know, we have the opportunity to be proud like no other generation, no other culture on earth, with our access to financial success and our access to social media, etc., and the list can go on and on. And as you know, we have plenty of bread. We have plenty of everything that our physical bodies could need or want to the point, I want you to think about this, to the point that we could choose to overindulge in these things time after time after time with very little, in some areas, with very little cultural repercussions. Take a moment and think about that. We have an opportunity in our culture to overindulge in these physical things, time after time after time. 
oftentimes with very little, at least in some areas, with very little cultural backlash or repercussions. So we certainly have plenty of bread. In addition, we spend less time working for the necessities of life than any other culture at any other time, any other place in the history of mankind. And as a result of that, we have more margin time that we can do with as we wish. Now, before you jump all over that and tell me about how little margin time you actually have, which I'm sure you probably don't have much of it, I want you to take a moment and ponder that. Because the reality of it is, we would not need to work that much just for the basic necessities that people throughout history have had. We work, in some cases, more because we want more, not because we have more needs. Sodom also was a place that did not care about the poor, and it's well documented. It is well documented that the more wealthy people are, the less percentage they tend to give. Not the less overall necessarily, but certainly the less percentage they tend to give to people in need. And we have access to every sensual, carnal, and physical pleasure that this world can offer us today. We have clear and in a lot of cases free access to that, to whatever the world can offer us through entertainment, various media, and the list can go on and on and on. In addition, when we look at Jesus' warning in Luke 17 and conclude, I believe that we can conclude that we are in yet another time in history that's characterized by overindulgence in fleshly desires, sexual perversion, and extreme evil. And, if, and as we read Luke chapter 17, I think we could probably conclude that our time today, it might not be as extreme as it was in the time of Noah and the time of Lot, but if you look at the progression of history, I think it's safe to say that it won't be long. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning. And sometimes I look at my attitude towards Sodom and towards these things, these things that I listed, uh, entertainment, those types of things. I look at my attitude and I say, Larry, are you really serious about living a holy life? Are you really serious about living a Christ-centered life? When I look at these things around me and I dabble in them here and there, And within myself, I think, I can handle it. I'll be fine with just a little bit of that. I can do a little bit of that and be okay. And I tend to have this attitude that a little bit of Sodom here and there is okay, as long as it's not clear and outright sin. A little bit's okay, as long as it's not clear and outright sin. Now, do you recognize with me this morning what that sounds like or who that sounds like? That sounds a lot like Lot. Is that scary? The reality was, he did handle it. He handled it fine. He lived in Sodom for years. He dwelled there for a long time. He had relationships. He had friends there. He had financial interactions there. He got wealthy there. And he did handle it. He was okay. He remained righteous. He survived. But he completely lost his family. And all that he had worked for his whole life, besides his own soul, to the destruction of Sodom. And we could even guess, I think it's safe to guess, that he came very close to losing his own soul himself, had God not have been 
merciful to him. So a couple of applications that I would like us to consider for our time today. First of all, just because you can handle it doesn't mean that you should do it. And I'm embarrassed when I think about the way I think about some of these things. The way I think about it in that way, well, I can handle it, so it's okay. And that's just simply not the case. Rather, consider how it will affect others as well. And I would argue that the attitude that I can handle it, a little bit of this and a little bit of that and still be fine, is an attitude from the world, from the devil himself, and will ultimately lead toward our own destruction if followed its logical outcome, ultimately lead to our own destruction. The second application I want us to think about is these slow changes in perspective don't affect me and they won't affect those around me. That idea that these slow changes in perspective don't affect me and they won't affect those around me. So let's take inventory on that thought. What is your current perspective on abortion? What is your current perspective on homosexuality? What is your current belief about immodest dress or impure and questionable speech or satire and humor at the expense of others or worldly and carnal entertainment? What is your perspective on those things? And how has your perspective on those things changed over the last five years or over the last 10 years or over the last 20 years? Is there a chance that we are becoming desensitized by the evil all around us and the way that evil is being lived out every day around us? And I would, I would argue that if we are partaking in media that portrays um, negative speech, evil speech, evil actions, I would argue that we are being desensitized whether we want it or not, whether we want to be or not. We are making that choice to be desensitized to the evil around us. Now, one thing that Lot had going for him, and I think it's important for us to think about this. One thing that Lot had going for him is that he was vexed or troubled continually by the sins of those around him. I do not see him becoming desensitized to sin around him, at least not according to Second Peter. Now, it's possible from time to time, I'm sure that was challenging for him, but he was continually vexed and distressed by what he saw around him. And my question for us, my question for me, my question for Larry this morning is, are you troubled by the continual sin that's around you? If not, are you righteous? I believe there's a strong, inseparable connection between being righteous and being troubled by sin. Becoming desensitized by sin ultimately leads us to an incorrect view of sin, which ultimately leads us toward the destruction of our own souls. The third thing I want us to think about is considering that we are living in a time similar to what Jesus spoke about in Luke 17. We need to be serious. We need to get serious. The warning that Jesus gave was not to remember Abraham and about his great choice that he made to go away from Sodom. That would have been a great thing to consider, for sure. And the warning was not to remember Lot, the righteous man who lived 
in the ungodly city and escaped with his soul. The warning that Jesus gave is telling, and that is to remember Lot's wife. She had a righteous husband. God was merciful to her to send angels to pull her out of the city when she hesitated. But ultimately, she looked back. Why? Was she thinking about her daughters and sons-in-law? Was she thinking about her friends? Was she thinking about the security and the safety that their financial success had afforded to her? Was she thinking of the carnal pleasures that she had enjoyed? And I don't want to look at this this morning as well. The husband's righteous, the wife is not, because sometimes it's opposite. I don't think the point here is that Lot, is that Lot's wife was a woman. I think the point is she had gotten wrapped up in the carnality of the city in which she was living. So may God help us as people who live in the city of Sodom to retain our righteousness, to sharpen our understanding of the worldly lifestyle around us, to get serious, yes, even desperate, to keep ourselves unspotted from the world and its thinking patterns and to prepare, ultimately, to prepare ourselves for that day when Jesus returns. Let's kneel for prayer.